Well, good evening once again, everybody. Bonus material. You want some bonus material? So as Tim and Mike were talking, I was flipping through my Bible, and uh, I noticed something that's been in my Bible for over 20 years. Sometimes when you got something in your Bible, you start putting things in your Bible. This is a bad idea after a while, isn't it? Because everything starts... Uh, but I hadn't noticed this in a long time. You know what, you know what that is? What's that? Uh, it's Confederate States of America, $100. It's a $100 bill, the Confederate States of America. So I heard a guy talk about this one time uh, as, an, as an illustration. He was talking about how there used to be tons of Confederate bills in this country. I mean, think about it. You know, when the, when the country was, in a, was dividing... There were different currencies. And so, you know, the war ended, the Civil War ended in 1865. But if in 1864 you were a person who had lots of Confederate money, one of the things that you, if you were wise, you were meeting with other people trying to figure out what to do with this money. Because guess what? In two years, in 1866, it's going to be worthless. And so what were you doing if you were wise? Again, we're going back now a couple hundred years. If you were sitting in a meeting and you were trying to figure out what to do with this money, what are some of the principles that uh, maybe would help drive your decision-making? What would you try to do with this? You might spend it. Yeah, you might just want to use it up as quick as you can. What else? Get more of it. Exchange it for what? Yeah, for something that was still going to be worth something in 1866, right? Yeah, if it was greenbacks, you wanted to turn this into, if this is a $100 bill, you want to see Ben Franklin on there, okay, or whatever it was in 1866. And, of course, his point was, if you're wise, you're taking this, this money and you're constantly thinking about how to turn it into something that will last in the future. And he said, and again, I think he pulled money out of his pocket, and he said, the money that I have in my pocket right now is no better than this Confederate money at some point in the future. And so we should constantly be thinking, how do I take these resources, these financial resources that God has given me, and invest them in things that will outlast this world? And I just thought, that got me. So again, listening to Tim Mike, sometimes you sit there, again, a lot of y'all have been coming to these things for a long time, and it's like, oh, they're going to ask us for money, right? This is the money asking session. Because they always got to do that, right? You know why they got to do that? Because they need money. Yeah. That's not a trick question. Yeah, like all this stuff costs money. And so if you've been around long enough, you know every single ministry is dependent on God's people taking the money that's not going to last at some point and turning it into something that will. And that's really what these videos represent and these lives. These are souls that are out here that will last forever. And we have a chance to take our Ben Franklins and turn them into something that will last so I don't know who I'm saying that. I think I just want to say that because I haven't thought about that in a long time, and it really moved me. So young people, it's start now, man. Like you're sitting here thinking it's just for the rich people. It's not. It's for all of us. And uh, I'm always asking myself, usually I get annoyed too, and I'm like, oh, it's the giving time. And I think, no, wait a second. Is this, am I supposed to do something with this? And uh, sometimes it's yes, and sometimes it's no. But you should always be asking that question. Okay, that's a bonus. End of bonus time. Uh, I used to be on the Athletes in Action executive leadership team. 
okay? I think I told you, Amy and I have worked for Athletes in Action for 30 years. It's a sports ministry that ministers to college and professional athletes. And I used to be on the, the, the leadership team. And one of the things that we got to do, this was in the early 2000s, we would go and meet with other organizations, other businesses, other big ministries, leadership teams. And one time we went down to Atlanta to meet with the Chick-fil-A leadership team, which is one of the coolest things I ever got to do. So we went to their headquarters down there, and it's just amazing. Like, Chick-fil-A is cool. It really is cool. It's cool at its core. I mean, if you got to go down there and ever see it. Has any of you ever been to the Chick-fil-A headquarters? couple back row. It's pretty cool down there. And they run, it, they run it very well. Well, we got to spend a couple days with their top executives. And so we're asking them questions. The leaders ask each other questions about strategy and about how you do what you do with people. And um, it seemed like over time, somehow they kept, whenever they talked about their product, and which is what? Chicken. Chicken. Um, they were always mentioning two crucial pickles. So guys would be talking about some strategy, and then they'd throw in two, two crucial pickles. And then you're talking about two crucial pickles. Two crucial pickles this, two crucial pickles that. And finally, at one point, I raised my hand, and I said, excuse me, but you guys keep talking about two crucial pickles. Like, what is that? And you guys, it was... It was one of those moments where, if you can envision, like when you were back in elementary school or junior high, and you asked a really dumb question, <laughs> right? And the room gets quiet, and people start to kind of move away from you. So, like, everybody's moving away from me. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, all their guys, like, got this really um, concerned look, okay? And I had no idea what was going on. And so one of the guys says, okay, the two crucial pickles are what make the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. And I still didn't know what they were talking about. You don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's two pickles on there. They don't put anything else on their chicken sandwich except these two pickles. Am I the only one that didn't know that? Everybody's nodding their head. Is there anybody in here that never noticed that there's two pickles on the sandwich? Thank you. You'll notice for the rest of your life, you'll notice the pickles now, okay? And there was just like this stern vibe in the air. That what, and what he said is everyone else, we don't put anything else on it. Of course, they do now. So I wish that I actually could go back and say you guys kind of changed it up by putting your, your lettuce and your tomato on. The point is, what he was saying was if you took these pickles away, it wouldn't be a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich anymore. It's what makes the sandwich. I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've been trying to walk with God for 30 years. 35, it's been 35 years I've been in ministry, been in church ministry, been doing this thing with college students for years, been around lots of people that are in the Christian network. And one of the things that has been really impressed on me is that there's certain qualities that have to be true about a person who calls themselves a Christian for them to be a real Christian, for them to be somebody that's actually living and experiencing what it means to be a Christian. So you can look, and again, I... I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I'm just, I'm constantly thinking about these kinds of things. We can get in Christian subcultures, like being at Hume Lake or being at Christian universities or, or, or whatever in our church, and we can start to kind of look on the outside like certain things. We can start to keep certain rules amongst ourselves. We can start to dress in a certain kind of way. We start to avoid certain topics. We, we know what to talk about politically or not, depending on what kind Right? And so there's all these kind of superficial things that can start to mark us as a Christian, but those aren't really what make us a Christian. 
there's certain qualities that Jesus says and that God through his words say, if you're going to walk with me, these are actually the things that will start to become true about you. We're going to look at one tonight. In Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at one tonight in this passage whose implications might tell us more about your spiritual pulse than almost any other indicator. And this has become kind of a go-to for me, this, this theme that we're actually going to see is all over the place in Scripture. It's one of these things that's just so, sort of easy to miss, overlook over time. And it's another situation where somebody had to stand against a crowd or do something different than what the rest of the crowd was doing. Is that you? Okay. Okay. So let's go on a little journey together. And we're going to stay mostly in this passage. Boy, I know I crushed you with verses last night, didn't I? Yeah, I got done last night. I was like, what in the world was that? I just read so much to you last night. I'm sorry I did. I never want to apologize for reading God's word. But that was a lot. We're not going to do as much tonight. We're going to look at Luke 17, verse 11. And similar even to what I did Sunday morning. Let's just take our time here and kind of slowly work our way through this passage that maybe is familiar to some of you. Maybe you haven't been in this in a while. And we're going to see that on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So this is similar um, to what he was doing when he met Bartimaeus. Okay? He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And what I just, I never want to miss this when I read a passage like this. When it says that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee, he's doing something that most Jews would never do. Maybe you've heard this before. There was actually, there's a couple different ways to get down to Jerusalem. What most Jews would do is take the long way to Jerusalem so that they wouldn't have to get anywhere near Samaria. Because the Jews hate the Samaritans. They despise them. It's amazing, crazy history between these two groups that just have uh, animosity towards one another. And I love the fact that Jesus took this road. I don't think it's an accident that this even gets recorded because it just reminds us that Jesus is not a respecter of persons. He's not, he's not pulled in one direction or another when it comes to political persuasions. He doesn't care what the, the spirit of the moment, you know, the cultural moment that you find yourself living in. He transcends it. He does stuff that goes completely opposite of what you expect is going to happen. And that's the Jesus I want to keep following. I think we all need to remind ourselves of, because that's the one we're about to meet here again with these guys. He's walking between Samaria and Galilee, and he's about to do something that most Jews wouldn't do. Because as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So again, just by way of reminder, there's no more despised class of person amongst the Jews than the lepers. What is leprosy? It's kind of interesting if you go look it up in Wikipedia because we don't usually get exposed to leprosy here in America, but leprosy is still a very active disease around the world. What, actually, does anybody know what, what, it is? what is leprosy? What is it? Nice and loud. Speak to everybody. It is a skin disease, and what does it do? You know what it does? Again, it's one of these words that we hear all the time, but maybe you don't know what the disease actually does. Say it again. It kills your nerves. Yeah, how do you know that? Where did that come from? Go ahead. You've heard of it. All right, that's good enough. 
I hadn't heard of that until a few years ago. I never really dug into what exactly it is, but that is what it does. Good. It kills your nerve endings so that you can't feel. It's like, you know, some of the problems that diabetics have when you start, can't feel your skin anymore. And it, it, it creates lesions and it creates all kinds of problems. Well, the Jews, we talked about this Sunday. The Jews are super superstitious. They are super superstitious about people that get diseases like this. It's not just a physical thing as far as they're concerned. There must be something spiritually wrong with you or your family, your people, for you to have a disease like this. It's a spiritual thing. And so even if you go back and you look in Leviticus 13, how about if I read Leviticus 13 to you tonight? How would that go? I was back in there today. There's this whole chapter that just talks about what happens if you have leprosy, okay? It's significant. And what the main thing that ends up happening is you can't be around pe normal people anymore, non-leprous people anymore, right? You're declared unclean. You don't get to be part of even the, the religious system that we have. You don't get to be part of the social system. You have to stay away from us. Again, it would just be good just to sit in that and think about what it would be like to be outcast like that. That hasn't been true. You know, even if you got picked on at school, I'm guessing none of us were such an outcast that we weren't allowed to come home into our village. We had to go be with other outcasts and never come back and be part of the family. Never come back and be part of the friend network. Your people now are these other people that you look at every day and you're reminded of your sickness and your inability to be part of things and even in your own mind wondering, what have I done? What can I do to get right? Think about what it would be like to wake up every day and have to do that. So it totally makes sense that when these guys see Jesus, again, the rumor on the street is that Jesus is not a respecter of persons by the very fact that he's coming near us because nobody else would come near us. And we know that he heals people. And so they cry out. And they don't even actually cry out for healing. They just say, have mercy. My gosh, our situation is so desperate. It's like bigger than even just we need this, our skin to change. Like our whole world just needs you to give something to us that maybe we don't deserve, but we know we can't get on our own. Okay? Desperate situation. Look at verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, guys, go and show yourselves to the priests. And the reason why he told them, well, why would they have to go and show themselves to the priests? If you look back at Leviticus 14, the implication of going to the priests would be they're the only ones who could declare that you were clean, that you were healed, that you were allowed to come back into the community. Okay. And so Jesus is just skipping some steps here. I wish there was more to this, but Jesus is like, guys, just get up and go see the priests. He's already assuming Leviticus 14 for them, okay? And it says, as they went, they got up and they went, they were cleansed. Super cool moment. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, of all things, this guy was a Samaritan. And we already, so that makes it even crazier, okay, that all the guys that came back, it's this dude that was doubly despised. I don't know how many of the others were Samaritans, but this one was. Then Jesus, who's watching this happen, he answers and he says, wait, were there... 
Weren't there 10 that were cleansed? Where are the nine? Why was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Again, that word sozo, your faith has saved you because you know who I am. He asked the question, where are the other nine? So let's just ask ourselves that question for a second. Where are the other nine? They're doing what he said to do. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. They're just being obedient to his word. Where else are they? Why aren't they coming back? They're just going back to do the things that they weren't able to do. We just said they've been ostracized for who knows how long. They're just getting back into life. Yeah, I'll blame them for that. Not a trick question. Why are you not coming back? They're being obedient. They're just going back to what they've been looking forward to doing. Maybe they're freaked out by this. Explain that. Yep. Yep. Freaked out. Yep. Freaked. Yep. Go ahead. Why were they not grateful? Why do you say that? Okay. So there might just be the contrast that they, they weren't grateful. At least not as much. I think there's a bunch of answers. Again, I'm not looking for any necessarily one. Maybe they just want to go back and see their family. I mean, what would you do? Want to get an Insta post out. You're going to go tweet, right? You're just going to go back and get about your life. None of which are bad things at all. But what I think is, and, and Jesus doesn't condemn them. He just says, how in the world is it possible that this, like, this is what he's implying, that this miraculous thing could happen? And only one person sees fit to stop before they go back to the t- town, before they freak out. Of course they're freaked out. Before they go uh, even to obey what I told them to do. They're so overwhelmed. Wouldn't the natural first response be, at least Jesus is implying this, that you would stop and drop everything and come back and consciously say thank you to the one that just triggered it all. He seems to be indicating, in fact, we know he is just because of what's everywhere else in Scripture, that 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 should be the expected response of anybody that's been impacted by something that God is doing in their life. That seems to be what he's implying. And he's not condemning the other nine, He's just saying, this is the way you should live when something really good happens to you and you know that it's God that did it. And I I wrote to myself, what is it about the one man's heart as compared to the other nine? Well, 
the question that rises up out of that is, is my life then characterized by an attitude of gratitude, by an attitude of thanksgiving? Is my life characterized by an attitude of thanksgiving versus, say, an attitude of complaining? an attitude of disgruntledness, an attitude of constantly feeling like something's not right. Is my life characterized by it? What if we could measure the, the thankfulness levels within your own heart tonight? I thought about this a long time ago. What if there was some kind of technology where we could hook ourselves up to a thankometer, right, or something, and we could get a readout of like, how, how do we answer that question? Is my heart really grateful? The reason why this bothered me for so long is because, and I don't even remember now, it's so hard for me to remember when different things impacted me, but I can remember being confronted by passages like this and people giving messages about this, and my answer was no. It's not that I don't ever say thank you. And we're not talking about saying thank you for opening the door or even necessarily thank you for this food before meals. Like there's moments where, oh, I say thank you. But my heart was characterized way, way, way more by a cup that's half full, half empty rather. It's always half empty. There's always something wrong. There's always something that needs to be fixed. There's always something that's not right. There's always something that I wish was different. Versus can I stop and just choose to be grateful for this moment right here? Can I just be thankful for what it is that I have instead of always seeing what I don't? There was this guy named Cicero. Well, and it would be interesting. We can't hook you up to thankometer, but what would, your, what would the people who live closest to you say about you? If you can't answer that for yourself, what the people that work with you, the people that live with you, what would your kids say? What would your roommates at school say about the thankfulness that's in your heart or the gratitude that's in your heart. This guy named Cicero said, gratitude is not only the greatest of the virtues, but it's the parent of all the others. What does that mean? Gratitude is not only the greatest of the virtues, it's a, the parent of all other virtues. Somebody else that hasn't spoken yet. What's that mean? Cicero. When's the last time you read Cicero? not only the greatest of the virtues, gratitude, it's the parent of all other virtues. That it ties into every other kind of virtue. Good. Not only does it tie into it, but without gratitude, you don't have any other virtues. It's the, it's the foundation upon which all other virtues rest. There was a guy named Mike Zigarelli. Christian guy, he did a study of 5,000 Christians. This was back in the early 2000s. And this is what he said. He said a mindset of gratitude, when he did this study, a mindset of gratitude is by far the top factor in developing a Christ-like character. Because it spawns joy, peace, patience, forgiveness, self-control. And, and what he wrote about in this book is the importance of growing one's gratitude intentionally working on being a grateful person and having a heart of gratitude. Which again, I just thought that was so wild when I first got exposed to that kind of talk. Because you think, well, being a grateful person is like a personality trait. 
But according to what Zigarelli found, and really, again, according to what the Bible teaches us, it really is a character trait that's developed over time as we get a clearer picture of who God is and what he's done and what, this, what our spirit is supposed to be turning into along the way. It's a, it's a work. Um, it's a posture. That's a word that I think is super helpful for me. It, it's, a, it's an inclination that my insides are, are bending in that direction versus bending in the opposite. Okay, that's what he's talking about. So, okay, why is it so difficult then to be grateful? And I'm going to throw a couple things out on the table. You know, if you go back to Genesis 1, or to, what is it, Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, where everything's getting started, a lack of gratitude is really at the core of Adam and Eve's rebellion, isn't it? I mean, God says, y'all can have all this. It's got to be amazing what he made available, but just don't touch that one. And what do Adam and Eve both want more than anything else? Okay. Um, physiologically, our bodies are constantly needing to replenish. They're constantly needing to replenish. So they're constantly being reminded that something's not right, that, that we need more of something. Okay. So not only is our soul... Like Adam and Eve's, our soul is constantly looking to get something else. But our bodies are saying something is always missing. Psychologically, our emotional state. I read an article not too long ago that talked about how people have a, are, are um, constantly pursuing happiness highs. That's just something that's, that characterizes human beings, which we get that, right? Like, I didn't need a psychologist to come up with that. We want to be happy. We, we're, we're constantly looking to try to make things better for ourselves emotionally. Again, these things are not necessarily bad. American culture itself is constantly encouraging us to upgrade, constantly making us feel like what we have right now is not enough, right? So it's just sort of built in. It's built into our bodies. It's built into our psyche. It's built into the, the particular culture that we find ourselves living in to not be grateful, to not be content and be able to just be thankful for what we have or even for what we don't have, but to constantly be in pursuit of something more. Totally makes sense. And we get it. What, what are some, let me just turn this back to y'all again. I made a little list for myself. When you think about your own, your own journey, what are some of the, the things that make it difficult for you to be a grateful person when you're not? What gets in the way of you feeling or expressing gratitude as you think about yourself? If you're honest. Sin. Be, be more specific. Yeah, what kind of sin? What, would, what, would, what specifically is it? Who said that? Okay, right on. Good. What else? Suffering. Suffering? Yeah, when th things just are bad, they hurt. Being angry. Yeah. Like that, again, your body just gets in the way of being able to be grateful for whatever moment I'm in right now because I've got to get some food. One of the love languages, isn't it, Amy? <laughs> I've had that discussion recently. I think, you know, cultivating an attitude 
Yeah, okay, so you need to be intentional. So not being intentional gets in the way of it. Yeah? Good. What else? Comparison. comparison. Talk about that. Actually, you guys, have, I got like six things on my list. I think you've said all of them already. Talk about comparison. Yes, just constantly seeing what somebody else has or their, the state they're in or what their marriage looks like, what their kids look like, their job. Always comparison gets in the way of gratitude. Good. What else? You sitting on another one? Social media can get in the way. Why is that? Put some words to that. I mean, I feel like it goes along the lines of comparison. It, it totally goes along the lines of comparison. Only seeing the good things. Talk about pride. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. I'm not content with how God made me. I wrote pride down. It was my number one thing in my list. But what I wrote next to pride was, it's all about me in any number of ways. I want life to just be about me. No, that's terrible for the preacher to say. But I do. Apart from the Spirit of God, I want y'all to serve me. And I want things to look the way I want them to look. And when they don't, I'm going to put my energy towards making them the way I want them to be. And that just doesn't leave a lot of room for gratitude for the way things are. What else? That's, that's a good role. Is anybody else sitting on one that hasn't been said yet? I put unmet expectations. How about that? I put being trapped by the as soon as dot, 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 then I'll be happy. Anybody able to nod to that one? As soon as I get here or this or with them, then, then I'll be grateful. Goodness, I'm plagued by that throughout my 20s. As soon as, as soon as. I put fear that's the only other one that I wrote down that hasn't been said. A fear. What do you think I mean by that? A fear of the future. So I'm constantly trying to change my situation and change my condition because I'm, I'm afraid that something negative is going to happen in the future. It almost seems like a weird one, doesn't it? But it's, it's a really interesting list to make for yourself. Like, what are the things that get in the way of me being grateful? And to be able to assess yourself and reflect on it. <clears throat> I was sitting in the doctor's office one time, reading the Reader's Digest, which I don't even know if those are in doctor's offices anymore. But as a I came across this little ditty. As a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. And when it's cool, he wants it hot, always wanting what is not. And I kept that. Because I'm like... That is exactly how I operate, okay? I'm never satisfied with what's going on right now. I always want something that's not. And God wants to check that. So it's so contrary to our nature. I want to say all that and us just to think about it because we all share in that. We, we all share in it's difficult to be a, a grateful person, to have a posture of thanksgiving. And so maybe that's why. God places such an emphasis on it as a virtue and a mark of his people. 
Because it's a, it's a supernatural thing for a person, again, not just to have a cheery disposition, but to have an inward posture that, that, that recognizes and is able to say thank you and direct that towards God on a consistent, regular basis every day in a way that it comes out in the way you interact with other people and it comes out in the way that I interact with situations. It's a mark of being one of God's people. So you'll see this everywhere. If you pay attention to it, you'll, you'll see be thankful, be thankful, be thankful is almost on every single page of the New Testament. It really is. It's all over the place. Let me just point out a couple verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18 and 19. You know, this one where Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will for you, that you would rejoice, that you'd keep praying, and you'd give thanks in all circumstances. Not necessarily for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. I have these conversations with college students all the time talking about what's God's will for my life. We talked about this week in another session. You know, what my, I'm constantly thinking, or they're constantly thinking, what's the next step vocationally? And so I've kind of gotten to a point, and I had a long time ago, I don't know, right? I want to be real careful about what advice I give to a student. I try to listen to what God's doing in their life and listen to how he's wired them and look at what their options are with them. I like to walk along Students, but here's what I can say to everyone by the end of the conversation. I don't know what his specific will is necessarily for you when it comes to work. I want to help you think about that. But I do know that he has said that along the way, as you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and what he wants you to do on this planet, what you can wake up every single day and know that you're in his will is if you're giving thanks while you're trying to figure it out. You're cultivating that mentality. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer, again, talk, talking to God by, and supplication, asking him for things, asking him for what's on your heart, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. With thanksgiving, midst of being anxious, no. Take that to God, and with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to him. Last one, Philippians 2, 12 through 14. I'm actually going to go over here and just read this. This is the last one we'll look at. Start paying attention to how often that idea of thanksgiving shows up. Girls eat popcorn. That's how I find Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Girls eat popcorn. That's how I learned it back in 1988. Here I am. Philippians 2, 12 through 14. Listen to this. Listen to this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that's Paul saying, look, when I'm not here with you, you guys be intentional to keep working this out, this thing that I've, that I've been teaching you about. And then look what he says next. Do all things then without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So interesting. 
that the first thing he says after he tells them to work out their salvation, the first thing that he says is do everything without grumbling and complaining. But instead, be, be a thankful person. That's what he's been saying all over the place. So that you'll be a light in a crooked, in a crooked world. I think that's so interesting. There, there was an article a few years ago in Time magazine. Here was, the, here was the headline. It said, grumblers, whiners, and crybabies. What's happened to the American character? So you want to be... You want to be an evangelist in this culture? Well, I definitely, I'm not. We definitely should talk to people about Jesus when we have opportunity to. We, we definitely should point people in that direction. But you can make a serious dent in people's world just by practicing being a grateful person. Just by, by again, your disposition leaning in the direction of gratitude instead of complaining, you will stand out amongst people. Okay. If I asked you how you were doing spiritually, and I don't want to talk much more about this, but if I asked people how they're doing spiritually, normally what we go to when we think about how we're doing spiritually is what, how are we doing reading our Bibles, right? What else? What are other things that are on your list? So how, whether you're praying, whether you're going to church, maybe there's some sin activity that's regular for you in some kind of way, and right? You immediately think of those things. But what we don't t typically ask ourselves is this. You know exactly where I'm going with this. The Bible says one of the greatest measures of how you're doing spiritually is whether or not you have a heart that's leaning towards gratitude. I mean, it does. On almost every, like I said, almost every page. That's how you measure how you're doing spiritually. So thankfulness winds up then being... It, it, it implicitly acknowledges God's sovereignty. It's saying something about our view of God. It flows from a transformed heart. It's not just something that you try to do on your own, but it's actually a result of constantly immersing yourself in what the word is encouraging us to do and constantly asking God to change our insides so that we'll become a grateful person. It's not something we just kind of pull up our socks and change. It's a result of the word and his spirit in us but he wants to do it for us. And then thankfulness is literally something we need to practice, as we've already said. It's an acquired skill, an issue of muscle memory. I wrote down to myself here, it's, it's really a way of viewing the world that becomes a choice, a mental and spiritual discipline. It's choosing to notice the little taken for granted things that could or should become objects of our thanksgiving. So I, I make myself do this, and then I'm going to stop, okay, and we'll get out of here because I'm not normally like this. I'm a whiner, aren't I, Amy? You not, I see you nodding your head a little bit. But I am. Like, I'm always able to see what's wrong. I show up at Hume Lake, right? Get into my room. Immediately, I'm going to see what's not right with my room. Some of you do the same thing. I know. So I have to purposely get up. And the first thing that I do in the morning, I, I thank God that my eyes opened up and they worked. I really do. That I'm, if I'm conscious again and I'm actually able to, my mind works, I thank him for it. I make myself start with that. You know, if I can get up on my feet, I got a bad leg. I don't know if somebody's seen me limping 19 years ago and I got in a horrible car accident. We talked about amputating it the other day at, the, at, at our, where were we when we talked about that? Yeah, at the pancake breakfast, that's what we do. We talked about cutting my leg off. <laughs> okay. 
So it's bad. It's in a bad way. But if I could get up out of my bed and it worked for another day, as I'm walking into the bathroom, I can thank God for that. If I get in the bathroom and everything's working the way it's supposed to work, I thank God for that. Like, seriously. You see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm pressing myself in that direction right away. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I really do this. I try to become mentally postured towards saying, God, I see you. I just thank for these little things. Oh, this hurts. It does hurt. I'm going to acknowledge that it hurts, but it's still working. Right? And as you practice that, it just becomes, it becomes sort of the default. That's how muscle memory works. Right? where you get to a point where you're not even having to necessarily think about it so intensely. You just start doing it. You just start noticing the good instead of noticing the bad. I got a little 12-year-old son who's here, and I already see it in him. Like he's, he's like a worse version of what I've always been. Don't you hate that, older folks with your kids? And it's like, oh, my gosh, that's a, that's a worse version of everything I don't like about myself. When it comes to just immediately being, oh, gosh, Dad. You know, I got somebody in my room. This is not going to go well. It's not going to go well at camp this week, you know, for whatever reason. That's the first reports we get back. This is mine just right away. Oh, Dad, camp's almost over. It's second day of camp. It's almost over, Dad. I don't, and then we're going to go back. There's nothing else to do for the summer, you know, just right away. That's what he's greeting me with in the parking lot. Just <clears throat> and so I see a responsibility both to be something different in front of him, but also just to, just to be encouraging him. In, in ways that say, yes, you could choose to see that. Or we could choose to just be, just be in this moment right here and say, God, this is really cool. In fact, the reason why I'm sorry that it's going to end is because I'm having such a good time right now. Let's focus on that. Let's be those kind of people. And let's stop because it's late. I want some more thoughts from you, but tomorrow we're going to have Eric Tanis here. We're supposed to. Again, I'm going to try to get him up here, and we're going to get at least a half an hour together so you can think about questions you want to ask him, you want to ask me. You could ask us about our ministries or what's going on with the kids in Pondy or whatever you want to do, and we'll see where that goes. Art, I'm going to pass the mic to you.